everybody. This is Randy Beamer with News 4 San Antonio, and thank you for listening to San Antonio's Voice, the podcast. We talk about all kinds of things with all kinds of people around the area, and today we're talking schools and kids and going back to school with Dr. Sean Micah of the Northeast Independent School District. Joining us also, Sal Del Cid, our assignment editor. Sal? Hey, Randy. Uh, great to be with you as always. And yeah, Dr. Micah, he's the leader of the second largest school district in San Antonio, and he says that things are going better than anticipated. And if that's the case, hats off, because this is an unprecedented time uh, during school. Uh, But Randy, you also brought to him some complaints from staff and teachers, and he addressed them, didn't deflect, but just talked about why things are the way they are. And you got to imagine with 9,000 employees, he's going to hear a lot of opinions and certainly get some feedback. Anyway, I thought it was pretty interesting, Randy, to kind of get a peek behind the curtain to see how a large school district here is faring. Yeah, he talks about their phase-in plans, how they're a little different than other school districts, how parents and students are dealing with that. Also, what parents should do if their child isn't doing as well as they think they should. And, and an interesting topic that I hadn't, and the way I knew about but didn't know as much about was kids that are missing, as they call it, unschooled. And in some cases, it's because their parents don't want them to go back to school, but in some cases, they're not sure why, and they're looking for those students. Anyway, it's a very interesting conversation. Hope you like it. Hope you rate it well at the end. Subscribe and tell your friends about San Antonio's Voice, the podcast. This is Dr. Sean Micah of the Northeast School District. First of all, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. I know you're very busy right now. How do you describe to parents, first of all, how things are going compared to what you expected Sure. at this point? Yeah, so things are going actually much better than we anticipated. Uh, you know, a month and a half, two months ago, I wasn't sure we were going to have any athletics or any extracurriculars. And so we've been able to get those going. Um, super proud of what our folks are doing. Um, we're not seeing a spread of COVID in those events. Uh, Super appreciative of our community for following the procedures that we've put in place. As far as our schools, again, uh, our parents have done an excellent job talking to their kids about the protocols. So what we're seeing in schools, our kids are complying and uh, are excited to come back. So, How many are back right so now? So about a little over 16,000 are back. Out so of, we're in phase three. Out of 60? Out of about a little over 60,000. And that is phase three. You just moved into the phase three. Um, what has this scheduling been like? Trying to guess how many parents want to have their kids come back, want to stay, want to go home, uh, and also dealing with the number of teachers who want to stay home or come back. How has it been balancing that? Sure. So those were all things that we anticipated very early on. And so what we were able to do, so for students, let's say, uh, Texas Education Agency allowed us uh, to hold parents to a choice for a nine-week or a grading period. We thought that was a little too long, so we actually split it into two so they could change their mind twice in a grading period. So we're on nine weeks grading. Um, So we have seen that change a little bit. Um, And not, I think, for a lot of the reasons people expect it. Um, Parents are... uh, I have a junior. She actually really enjoys the virtual environment. And she's able to schedule her time. Um, she's able to do work kind of on her schedule, not so much on, on a fixed schedule. So she still participates in dance and the extracurriculars because we had made that decision to allow it for students in a virtual environment. So um, with that, I think uh, um, 
a lot of parents and students are very um, pleased at our virtual school. Compared and, to the spring, especially. Right. I mean, in the spring, and that's it. You know, we, we made that happen in a week. It was a reactive piece, and what we were really doing was the best that we could at that given moment. But we took the time between then and now to really ramp up and do it much differently. So I think what we've seen um, for one high school, they called 1,100 and 153 parents said, you know what, we're going to stay out and stay in a virtual uh, environment, and not because they're scared. It was really that my child's thriving in this uh, format. But that's not for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, I would, and you've heard this, I'm sure, everywhere, that in-person schooling is still what we consider the best. And so we still want our kids back. As far as staff, um, we, our HR department, worked with our staff very early on. And so we tried uh, to accommodate as much as we could. Um, we have this year the lowest staff turnover we've ever had in the last five years. Um, not the retirements, the resignations that we heard were going to happen or no, might have happened? Not, not like what you'd think. I think if, uh, if you listen to the news, you would think it was really uh, very rampant. It was not here. We were able to accommodate a lot of our teachers. Uh, our principals worked with them in their specific pieces. Our HR department did as well. And so um, we have not had a lot of turnover. We have not had a lot of retirements. Um, now, it's tough. Teachers are, it's a tough job right now um, for those working in a virtual and an in-person environment. You know, our hope and what we've told our principals is really try to move away and let teachers do one or the other. But in some instances, that's just tough to do. Yeah, is that the toughest thing right now for teachers to have to look at a computer and look at 10, now 15 kids in a classroom as well? Yeah, it's tough. To try to entertain and keep 15 students engaged in person and try to do their due diligence to the students that are virtual, that's tough. It, it's tough for them and it's a challenge, but um, they're doing amazing work. It's just a heavy lift. How do you split, um, how, how did you schedule when they came back? Um, you want to have, as much as you can, one teacher to a virtual classroom mm -hmm. and one teacher to in-person classrooms. Did you add, could you add any staff? Could you shift any staff to make that happen? Are you still doing that? Yes, to <laughs> all of those. We were able to do all of those types of things. So um, what we were able to do for those uh, parents that are, again are staying in a virtual, their child's gonna stay in a virtual environment. What we were able to do and our principals were able to do is really identify teachers that were going to be virtual teachers as we got to our later phases and those that wished to do in-person. And so what we've been able to do in a virtual environment is say at one school, um, there's not enough staff there to do it. So if you're in a virtual environment and say you attend um, Wincrest Elementary, if you're in a virtual environment, you actually may be taking a virtual class at Hebner with a teacher. So we were able to take those teachers and share them across the district to try to um, lessen the burden on our staff. Again, what we're trying to do is get them to where they're teaching one or the other, not both. And when they come back to school, will they have different or different teachers? Potentially. It, it just depends. Um, it depends on the grade level. It depends on the school. It depends on the staffing model. So they may and they may not. What was it like at the beginning back in June? You started taking surveys over the summer of how many parents wanted their kids to come back, and that changed with the spike. What was it like initially? What did it wind up, and where do you think it's going to be? When's your next survey? 
So we've really gone now to letting the campuses do that and communicate with parents and not so much from the district because what we found with the multiple surveys we did over the summer our parents weren't sure which one was their final decision making and which ones um, were just us trying to get a barometer and so we're really putting that back to the campuses um, because those principals those teachers know that community the best and so when we have 68 schools it's hard for us to manage all of that um, it what we did again is we allow them to make different choices at, at halfway mark in the nine weeks and then again at the end of the nine weeks so October the 19th begins our new nine weeks, so they'll be able to change their mind that week of the 16th of October. And that week before, they can change they it can up to them. They don't have their... to say a month out, Correct. we want to do this. But once they make that decision to stay virtual, then they're then committed again for that four, four and a half week period. What is the toughest thing you think for kids to deal with right now? What's the big complaint you're hearing from the kids and from the parents about being connected to the teacher, being connected to the school. Um, we've heard a lot about grades of mm -hmm. students dropping off across the country. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing that? Yeah. So I, I think for from what I've heard from parents, so one of the members of my staff actually called a lot of parents of students that we identified are not doing well. They were failing classes. And what we heard from the parents, I can't get them motivated. I need the help of my teacher. I can't get them to log in, even asynchronously. Uh, I just can't get them to get going. I really need the teacher. I need them back into school. So what we were able to do at a lot of our campuses, um, because the survey results, we uh, even though we're at phase three and we can have up to 15 students in a room, um, based on our parents' choices, we never got to that capacity. So we were able to start calling some students of, uh, and parents and saying, we'd really like your child back. They're not doing well. Uh, will you send them back and, and we'll start working with them. And so, you know, and look, our teachers are incredible. They're doing, uh, one campus has given uh, teachers five to six kids that are in a virtual environment that are struggling and they're like a case manager and they check in with them multiple times during the week to see how are you doing? How can I help you? Counselors are going that extra mile as well to try to stay connected to kids. So I think really in that it's just, it's not what we're used to. And that's the toughest piece. You have five phases. Right now you're in phase three. That's up mm -hmm. to 15. Just yesterday, the Metro Health said that we're under the 5% positivity mm -hmm. rate, which will mean we understand changing or allowing more students back in class. Where do you see right now the phase four and five, and what will that mean in terms of numbers back in class? Sure. So phase four would put 20 students per classroom. And then phase five is really we're open. To, to anyone. Now, we've made the commitment. You may have seen around the state that some districts are already uh, discontinuing virtual learning. We're not. Our community, uh, there, are some, there are a lot of parents out there that want that all year, so we're committed to it throughout this year. Uh, so we're not going to do away with it. We're always going to have that option. But uh, hopefully, you know, as you heard last night uh, with the mayor and the judge's debrief, um, while the positivity rate declined, our 14-day average kind of shifted directions a little bit. So it's important to, to always look not just at one metric, but a lot of different metrics, and we outline them in our plan um, it, it, to look at those phases. So we'll see how it goes. How many students do you think will stay uh, virtual the entire year? That's a great, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I don't know. Um, 
because we've seen it change so much. It was around uh, 63 to 64% uh, coming back, and now we're probably around um, 55 to 45, 55 being virtual. So it has shifted. I think it's really going to depend. Wait, I'm sorry. Go through those numbers again okay. in case I'm listening so we, on the radio. So 65% right. wanted in-person back in June. Right. All right. Now, with our last survey that we did, it actually was about 55, 45, 55 wanting to remain virtual. So it shifted. Even, and I think that probably had something to do with over the summer that we started seeing that rise in cases. Right. I think also from talking to parents, I've heard that we want to see how these phases go. Are there uh, outbreaks at schools? Are schools able to handle uh, those components. How is virtual learning working for my child, right? So I think there are a lot of factors that parents are looking at uh, as to that. So again, you know, these things can change. So we'll see coming up here um, in another week what parents decide to do. And when you try to uh, get them back in class, I know you've, you've had some videos on explaining what you're doing. And one of the things is that you're minimizing student movements. We've heard of a lot of things, words like pods, and keeping mm-hmm. things contained. What are you doing at schools when the kids come back to try to make sure if you have one kid get it, that two doors down, the whole class won't get it? Sure. So phase one and two really controlled student movement on campus because, again, positivity rates, the, the spread in the community is higher, so it was uh, we took a more restrictive approach to school. Now that we're in phase three, Numbers have declined, things are, so now we're allowing student movement throughout the campus. So one, of course, is that reinforcement of wearing the mask at all times, um, washing hand, you know, hand hygiene, um, how to cough, how to sneeze, those types of things, frequent uh, disinfection of the rooms. And then uh, what we make sure to do is if we have, so for instance, we have different case, uh, scenarios in schools, but say a child displays a symptom of COVID-19. And so we take that child out and isolate them in the nurse's station. We then take the classroom out and we go in with electrostatic backpack sprayers and deep clean that room. And that happens in minutes. And so then the students come back in because now the room has been disinfected. We make sure to send a letter home to parents in that, uh, children in that room to say this is what happened today. Not that there was a case, but that somebody displayed a symptom. Now, if they actually have COVID and we've confirmed it, then a letter goes to the entire uh, community, to every parent, and then also to every faculty member there because we want to make sure that they know, yes, there was a, a positive case there. Uh, how, how often have you had to take a kid out who had symptoms and disinfect, like you said, and then spray it and then get the kids back in the room? I don't know that specific number, but I can get it for how, you. How about in terms of we had a case, I understand, the other day at, at Bush Middle School. How many times have you had to notify parents? We've had a student with it. We've had, uh, you know, we're contact tracing, I guess, and you do that yourself too, right? Correct. How so many, our health department along with Metro Health does the contact tracing. And what is it like in that case? How many students have been contacted? How many students have you had? How many positives? Right. 25. And then date. staff also? So 55 to date. So August the 1st to today, we've had 55 staff. August the 17th to today, we've had 25 students. The 55 staff, Mm -hmm. does that concern you in terms of they came back first, they were together, are they, people might think, well, they're more distanced. You have Mm -hmm. one teacher per classroom. 
What comes to your mind when you think about 55 compared to how many staff you have? Well, I think first we say we've got 9,000 employees. And so we put it into context that that's not even uh, a percent. Um, so it's a very low rate. I think what we saw very early on was, uh, again, they're really not getting it at the school. It's really the habits and the things that they're doing outside of school. And so I think, you know, um, we have fatigue, right, with, with quarantining. And so you start to expand your bubble a little bit, and now you're bringing over family members and, and people, oh, well, my family won't get me sick, and that's what happens. And so, uh, again, as far as spreading at the campus, no. I mean, have we had to isolate some people? Yes. Um, and, again, I think that's why it was so important that we phased students back in is that what it allowed us to do is scale up our protocols and make sure that our staff was trained on the proper way to handle it and our kids were trained because early on um, teachers would sit in a classroom together and eat lunch for 30 or 45 minutes not realizing that that's not a good thing to do. Um, so we talked to them about going outside and doing it and really thinking about things differently. Um, but again, I'm, it's 55 is concerning. I think any of them are concerning, but again, it's, it's not rampant, and I'm super proud of the staff in our district for what they're doing. How do you describe to parents and others what a school day for kids is like now compared to what it was? I know there's difference in the scheduling mm -hmm. at some schools um, and then trying to sync that up with an at-home sure. class. What's it like compared to last year? <clears throat> you know... I think if, if you could go inside the room and see it, you'd be surprised how normal it really is. Students are moving around the building. I have a freshman. Uh, he started in phase two and now he's at phase three. Uh, he's going to lunch with his peers. He's moving about the building and going to classrooms. You know, the only thing that he talked about is the two-second echo that happens with a virtual environment uh, versus the in-person. But other than that, he said it was pretty, pretty normal to him. He's going to JROTC. Um, you know, he's, he's doing those things. They're going to football games. So there's a lot of normal, and I, I think what I would stress to people is we can see whatever we want to see. If we want to see all the negative, that's what we'll see. Or we can focus on the positives. And again, we're at phase three. We have 15 students back uh, up to a max in a classroom, and we only have 25 cases. And so I think that really people need to look and say, I think the way you phased in is working because we're not getting it. And then when we do find a student, we're really not isolating very many because of the procedures that are in place. What did you watch in terms of other school districts? Um, others opened up in classroom outside of Bear County faster than we did. Sure. Um, what did you learn from them about what to do and what not to do? You know. Or across the country. Sure. I, and I would say as far as around our area, you know, it's important for everybody to realize, for instance, Bernie, right, opened up very early. Well, that county has a fraction of the cases uh, to date. I think they have about 1,100 cases right now compared to almost 59,000. So they have a lot less spread, so they were able to be a lot more aggressive with it. As opposed to some, uh, I watched some uh, Schools and districts across the, the United States open up, only to open and close very quickly because 
the spread in the community was uh, a lot greater. There were many more cases, and I've said this early on. Schools are just microcosms of the communities that they serve. If there's a great deal of COVID in the community, then there's going to be a great deal of COVID in schools. And the flip side, if there's a, a less spread in a community, then chances in the school are less. Um, so I watched a lot of that and learned some things about, hey, it's not smart to just open the doors when the spread was high. Back when in August, it, it, was, it was much more rampant than it is today. Um, so, yeah, I learned a few things. And people are uh, maybe surprised that with all the districts in San Antonio, I know you got together with other uh, administrators and kind of figured out what you wanted to do. But individually, there are still a lot of big differences in there because each of you had your own panels. Sure. Why did you decide to, to do the things you did, say, that are different than <clears throat> some of the others, bringing back people in those four and a half weeks mm-hmm. instead of just nine weeks? Um, and the numbers are a little different in your school district. Mm-hmm. Why did you come to those decisions compared to what others did? Sure. So first off, nobody has ever done this before. So everybody's going to have a different route to it. And nobody knows the perfect route because well, we've never been here. We've never experienced it, right? What I did is listen to my parents. I listened to our staff. I had many listening sessions with teachers. And then I have an executive staff that really helped me think through some of these things. And again, for us, the Texas Education Agency uh, gave us a lot of latitude and flexibility in how we did some things. So what we tried to do is balance uh, the safety of our staff and our students but with the need to open schools and get kids back to school and, and doing it. So we made those decisions based on a lot, of, a lot of points. There's not any one factor that was more than the other. And the TEA just changed some of its requirements in terms of funding, mm-hmm. um, give you a little more latitude. I know at the beginning of this year and before, school districts were concerned about getting state money if they didn't follow certain rules or get everybody back in class when the state wanted them to. Where are you now in that? And in terms of concern about state funding, um, is, that a, is that a thing of the past in terms of attendance mm-hmm. um, and, and getting at least close to where you were last year in, in state money with a, the number of kids? So we anticipated more kids than what we have enrolled. And so right there, uh, the way that the state funds us is on the number of kids we have and their average daily attendance. So right there, we, were, we had to expect less revenue. What TEA did was they did a hold harmless period initially of 12 weeks. What they did the other day was expanded an additional six weeks, so now it takes us through up till uh, Christmas. And hold harmless, meaning that... So what they did is took a three-year average of our average daily attendance for a year, and they took that, and so um, they calculated and said if if it was a 96% rate, then they said, okay, well, your um, enrollment was 64,000, 96% of that, there is your floor, so you're never going to get less than that dollar amount. And so that's how they funded us. So is that a great move on their part? Yes. It does have a piece, though, that everybody that wants in-person learning has to be in the building. So it's not that you just keep getting funded no matter what you do. You know, some districts uh, around the area just opened just recently. Um, So there's still that. But I think, again, what they're driving it back to is that local control, looking at local context, using local boards to make decisions based on their area 
in concert with the health authority. And some of that concern about money is ongoing all the time. This year I've heard you talk about the enrollment drops. Uh, you've had enrollment drops in the past, but I've heard the phrase unschooled, that there's concern that there are kids out there that you can't reach, that you can't find, that literally are not being either brought to school by their parents or being signed up online. And in some cases, they're going door to door to try to find those kids. Are you one of those districts? Yeah. So uh, when you look across the state, the enrollment loss is really pre-K, K and one. It's the youngest learners that are not coming back. So um, I've looked at um, across Texas and you see enrollment loss anywhere from two and a half up to 10 percent. So we're approximately about 5%. And that 25 to 10% is of those younger people? or uh, So it's total? entirely. But uh, again, when you look at, uh, so I was reading an article yesterday, um, some districts pre-K numbers that they anticipated um, are 40% less than what they expected. And I think, you know, in talking with some parents of four-year-olds, what it is is it's really... One, you look at pre-K and K, they're not compulsory. You do not have to go to those. Um, compulsory attendance or compulsory school really begins in the first grade. So you don't have to go, first of all. And then the other thing that parents are saying is, look, my four-year-old, I'm not sure can wear a mask all day. I'm not sure I trust them to be able to do the, the proper safety protocols to stay safe. So I'm just going to go ahead and keep them home. Is that a worry on our part? Absolutely. Um, our young learners, what I fear for is that if we don't get them in at an early age and really start to work with them on academics, we're going to be um, working with them intensively over the years to come. And that's really, Commissioner Morath said it, we can't let um, a health crisis become an educational crisis. And that's what we're all working on is really trying to capture those students. Uh, but again, it's, it's tough to talk about, um, you know, when we look at uh, pre-K and K for our district, that almost makes up 2,000 kids that didn't come, didn't come in. And are you out and knocking so on doors? We don't even know who they are, by the way, because they may not have registered. That was just what we anticipated to come. So that was the expected. And are some of these little brothers and sisters of other students, or are these just some. people? Sure, some are, and some are brand-new families with a, with a this is their first child. It's the gamut out there. Um, so some we do know, and we've reached out to and, and, and spoken to them, and some have come back. Um, but some are still going, still saying, you know, I, no, I'd rather not. I'm well, we had this home. big discussion about pre-K in San Antonio and how important it is for pre-K, let alone mm -hmm. for kindergarten. And if you lose both of those years in some kids, is this going to uh, maybe mark this generation or really set them back? It could. Now, the hope is is that if, if they're pre-K and didn't come to school this year, that sometime over the course of the 2021 school year that there's a vaccine and it becomes widely spread and we can then get on with it so that they will come in in kindergarten. But again, they've still missed a year of instruction. So we're going to have to do, I mean, we're going to, as an educational system, have to address it. It's going to be real. Um, because again, when, um, when we started coming back, I saw the enrollment loss here, and then as I've talked with my colleagues around the state, again, while yes, it's, it's, it's hitting us, it's hitting everyone, and some districts much harder than others. And it's mostly pre-K and kindergarten, Correct. but there are some others. Sure. Older kids. Mm -hmm. What happens to those? Where do you think they are? Randy, I don't know. 
you know, we are doing everything to reach out to those families, um, trying to track them down, using our stand counselors, using our counselors, using our attendance officers, going to homes, trying to find. But again, you know, for some of them, um, you know, we have a, 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 a select group of, in our population that are migrant workers. We don't know where they are. Um, have they come back? I don't know. Um, did they go back to their family? Uh, this was a concern of mine from the very beginning is the demographic shift that would happen because of COVID. So many people lost their jobs. Um, now all of a sudden they cannot afford um, their rent. Maybe they can't afford their home anymore. So they've either sold it because the housing market's still hot in San Antonio and they've moved back with their parents. They've moved back to another state. So there's a lot of things that are still going on that we're still learning a lot about. Um, which is why the, I took to the board back in the summer a uh, change to board policy to really not penalize kids. Um, so what we always said is if you're a junior and you moved somewhere uh, out of your attendance zone, you could finish your senior year at, your, at the school that you went to. Right? So, for instance, if you were a Reagan student and then you moved to Johnson, over the summer, well, you could still go back to Reagan for your senior year. Well, we expanded that to fifth, eighth as well to allow them because we anticipated some families were going to have to move out of necessity just to make it by. So we made some changes to that. And what we've done is really tried to work with parents to accommodate some of it. Again, if they're virtual, hey, they, could, they can continue there. It's not a problem. And people also might not realize you also have to deal with food issues. Uh, how big is that uh, a problem and a logistical issue for a big district like Northeast? So I am super proud of Sharon Glosson and her team. Sharon is our executive director for child nutrition. Uh, in the city and in the county, we fed the most meals during closure, to over 2.4 million meals. Um, Sharon and her group are, I mean, when I would go out and visit campuses back in March and April, these ladies and gentlemen of our child nutrition were truly uh, the bright spot in a pandemic. Uh, we had parents waiting in line just to connect their child with the school because that was the face. These women, we posted it on our social media of a lady dancing out at the street with a sign getting them to come in. Um, you know, and, and we fed much more than just our kids. These are students from all around the area. It didn't matter where you went to school. Luckily, uh, the federal government, because it is a federally funded program, um, was able to extend it now through December, so we're able to continue. And once they did, um, at the initial beginning, we saw a lot less people coming to get meals. Now that the federal government has extended that program of, of a free meal, we've seen uh, an increase in people coming to get meals again. You mentioned uh, people uh, leaving the district or not sure where they are, not coming back. Charter schools has been an issue. Uh, some people would call it draining students out of public schools mm -hmm. or more and more people going to charter schools. And because during the summer there was a lot of uh, publicity about kids not being able to go back to classrooms or possibly not being able to go back to classrooms as soon or as full as others, uh, there was a lot of talk about the numbers going up in charter schools. How much more did you lose students to charter schools this year than in the past? Yeah, I don't, you know, Randy, I don't know the exact number, but I think what I would reframe it as is really parents had another option now in a choice of schools were you closed or open and that's kind of the way I looked at it is it wasn't so much now of a charter versus a public it was 
I want my child in school, so are you open? So now I'm going to go there. Or are you closed? Well, I'm not going to go there. Do um, you think you'll get some of those kids back from the charter school if they decided to try an open school? Sure. I think what, what we have seen uh, over years is the ebbs and flows of students leaving and then coming back. Um, you know, charters, uh, they're all a little different. They're kind of what I call niche marketers, and they all have their little niche. Um, so some parents go there and find that it's not quite what they anticipated, and others find that it is what they anticipated. So we see the ins and outs of students uh, with charters, just kind of like what we see the ins and outs of a, a family's living in a neighboring school district. Now they're here, then they move back, and so forth. So, But that's been one of the biggest challenges in recent years, and now this Choose to Succeed group uh, is coming in with some big money, with some big goals, mm-hmm. 150,000 charter students they want to have in the next 10 years which would really affect public school districts mm-hmm. like yourself. How do you deal, both deal with that and then tell parents, this is why public schools is where you should go, not charter schools? Yeah, what I try to not be is a salesman. In the end, parents are their child's best advocate. And so I'm not going to sit here and try to sell them a bill of goods. What I try to to do is show them what we do and do well, and then allow that parent to make that choice. Um, you know, again, to, to sit and try to argue with a parent uh, over a choice that they've made, um, I don't believe is my place necessarily to be, rather than to demonstrate what we really do and do well, and then allow them to make an informed choice. What do you do better than charter schools? We meet students' needs. That's public education has a place for every child, period. We have programs, we have extracurriculars, we have trained staff that do some things. Not every charter has certified teachers in it, we do. Um, we have to, uh, as a system, be much uh, very transparent about things. Charters simply don't. And so, and again, while there's uh, this bit of they're not for profit, absolutely they make profit. Uh, I've watched and talked to many parents that went to a charter school only to be pressured to give money in large amounts, otherwise they'd lose their teacher, or they wouldn't uh, have X resource. We don't do that. If we, we try to do and provide the very best to every student, no matter what walk of life they come from. And that's, I think, a big change. Even though I've heard many charters say that they accept all students, time and time again I've talked to parents, and I've seen it in person, where that just does not happen. We take everyone, and we find a place for them. And is that, uh, I've heard one of the uh, leaders of a charter school say that's a handicap and unfair for public schools, that you have to take everybody and generally they can if not pick and choose, they can deal with students that may or may not be successful on their campus. Mm-hmm. Um, how big is this going to be between public schools and charter schools um, in San Antonio if they come in with plans of 150,000 students in 10 years? Sure. How much money could that siphon away from public schools? How much could it hurt you and all the kids? Well, I think you have to look across the United States to see that impact. So after Katrina, Um, New Orleans became a city with no public system. It all became charters. You see it in Indianapolis. You see it in Colorado. And so um, it can really devastate the public system. Um, 
I'm a public, I went to public schools, my children go to public schools, my wife went to public school. I believe that uh, public school is what sets this country apart from countries all across uh, the world. And when we start to provide an education um, based on your dollars, or, or th th then we're going to have some struggles. Look, public education is not perfect, and we have room to grow. Absolutely. But I think if we all came to the table and really worked to address those types of things in real authentic ways and didn't pass legislation that handcuffed us from doing some things sometimes that we need to do, we could accomplish and get done and get over these challenges. But oftentimes we're dealing with outside influences on the system that we just don't control and then we're at the mercy of that decision. Different kind of competition in some ways for students in terms of magnet schools. And I talked with Pedro Martinez of uh, San Antonio Independent School District. They've been very successful with magnet schools, probably getting some students from your district area to come to their magnet schools. And you're opening up another magnet school. What is the future of magnet schools in Northeast and in the country? Sure. So, um, Richard Middleton, the superintendent in Northeast for 21 years. I think uh, was a visionary in the sense that he opened magnets before magnets were very popular. NISA, STEM, ETA, all these types of programs and really started again to go back to what I said, public schools can offer a space for every child. We're not just trying to target a certain kind of child, we're trying to give something to everyone. And so magnets, what it allows is for us to tailor it a little bit to a specific need. And so we're opening a new magnet, a cybersecurity magnet. But again, what we've heard from our students and from our parents are kids don't want to leave their home campus anymore. They don't want to start over at a new school learning new friends and trying to fit in. They want to stay at their home school but go somewhere for specialized programming. So that's what the cybersecurity center will do is students will be able to go there, get those um, very specialized classes, and then go back to their home campus for their um, core curriculum. We had a number of people who have contacted us, including teachers and some parents, that they um, had specific concerns uh, about, and, and you've heard from teachers associations here that uh, across the state, uh, there have been violations of safety codes and things like that and not enough um, PPE, no dividers, plexiglass. We had one here, um, quote, we're just wondering why it isn't safe for students to go to the library to check out books, yet we're safe enough to be in the classroom with 15 students with no dividers, plexiglass, grades three to five. All we were given was a spray bottle. Um, caused a lot of teachers to have headaches wonder if it's due to adequate amount of oxygen. What do you tell uh, teachers? Uh, at last, it says kids are spaced as far as they can be, but it can't be six feet, especially during lunch. Is that, is that an outlier? Is that uh, a teacher? What would you tell a teacher who came to you with that? Sure. So what I've said to the teachers, so I've had several listening sessions where I've listened to over 100 teachers from all different levels talk about what's working well, what's not working well, what are their concerns, and so forth. What I say to that is, for instance, lunch. This is about risk mitigation. And just as you and I are sitting here today minus masks, right, um, there's a certain risk established. Even though we're more than six feet apart, 
being in a, in a room like this, in a smaller room, for over 15 minutes has a certain risk to it. So we have to know that. What we try to do is risk mitigate, cut down as much as we can on that potential. One thing that we know, um, we, had, we recognized our custodians last Friday, and what I heard from our teachers of what's working well is how impressed they are with our custodial crew. As we started to face students back, we were not yet, so we had our staff back, not necessarily all of our kids. We use transportation people to go in and do a lot of cleaning inside of our buildings. So we've really done that. And again, what, what I've been told, and we have a COVID panel in the district, what I've been told is this, one of the single most important things to do is wear the face mask and then clean, wash your hands, and then social distance to the extent that you can. Um, when we go to HEB, when I go to Costco, I'm not always six feet apart from people. And I know at that point there's a certain risk factor in there. I just try to reduce my risk the mu as much as I can. Um, you know, is that an outlier? I, I will tell you in talking to the teachers that I have, um, most of them are very grateful for the things that we've done, are very impressed with what we've done. And again, I'll go back to we've had very little turnover and very few retirements. Mm -hmm. So um, we are trying to meet their needs because at the heart, our teachers and our staff are what is the heartbeat of our school district. I had a question here from a teacher. How many students are going to be in each of the kids' Zooms starting Monday? There's going to be one virtual teacher per grade level. Supposedly that teacher will have up to 32 students, but they are hearing that many are having 35 and more. Yeah, so again, Randy, it just kind of depends on the campus. So when we passed our plan, what we didn't say is this is a universal fit across the district because we recognized very early on all 68 schools look very different. And so we can't try to uh, rubber stamp a, a, a solution to 68 different schools. Again, I had some schools wanting about 26% in person up to a little over 50% in person. So they're all going to look different. The virtual component, and I think what I'd stress to teachers are, one, um, they're not on on face-to-face -face computer time all day. TEA has said that. You can't have them on, sitting in front of a computer day in and day out, right? And so the other thing when you're teaching in person is you have kids there and you have behaviors that you have to manage. In a virtual environment, you can, if a kid started to talk when they were, you can actually hit a mute button. You can't do that in a classroom. And so in-person teachers are dealing with some other types of things than a virtual teacher can. So can they take on a few more? Yeah, they can. Uh, again, you know, what we've done and what I've committed to is uh, because we are down in enrollment, we actually are a little overstaffed. And I, I've said I'm committed to keeping our staff in check. So what we're trying to do is maximize the use of our staff and, and across the district to the best that we can. Um, but I'd say that if they have a specific concern, they need to first go to their principal and talk to them. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes what I find is they haven't gone to their administrator to talk about their concern. And that principal or that assistant principal a lot of times can address it um, in, in, a, in a very quick manner. Are you doing all right in terms of uh, the numbers of computers that kids have and the Wi-Fi hotspots? I know there's a, you know, a lot of problems with connectivity early on. The kids didn't have the Wi-Fi at home. Where are you in that right now, and how many kids still need computers? None, to my knowledge. I mean, we were able to meet that need in the spring, and then over the from the spring to now, we've purchased more Chromebooks. We purchased um, hotspots, and so to, to, to 
I mean, to date, I've heard of no problems whatsoever in it. Um, but when it comes to connectivity, I mean, look, a hotspot versus a direct line at your house, um, yeah, are they the same speed? No. And I mm -hmm. think this is a greater issue than Northeast. This is really a state and a nation's problem to deal with because what we've found through this is that Internet is like any uh, like power or water. It's an essential service. When people start losing their jobs and we had libraries and schools closed, where were you going to go and apply for um, unemployment? You had to go online. So these people didn't even have access to it. So it's a greater than just a school. This is a real problem that we've got to take. I, I sit on, on operation connectivity for the state as we're trying to grapple with how are we going to address this uh, in the state of Texas. So the city of San Antonio has taken some measures and have identified some areas to start uh, doing it. But this, this is really going to take legislative action to, to make it happen. And last quick question, what's it going to look like in January? How different do you think it's going to be school in January? 95% of the kids going to be back in class? Mm -hmm. Randy, I don't have a crystal ball. You know, um, while I said back in March that uh, before we left, executive staff and I met and I said, COVID's coming, we need to prepare, get your plans. While I expected COVID to hit, I never expected us to close for the rest of the year. I don't know what it's going to look like. I think there's a lot of competing um, thoughts out there. People are thinking with the flu coming, with the cold season coming that it's it's going to get really bad i've talked to other people that say you know what if everybody's wearing their mask and doing it pretty well we may not see all of that happen because it's also keeping those germs in mm -hmm. i don't think anybody really knows all we can do um, is hope for the best but prepare for when things may go sideways that's why it's so important that we get the kids back in our schools now to give them the high quality education that we do and the very best that we can um, because who knows what the what it's going to look like I hope that it looks better and that it that um, again I will say that if you listen to a lot of people back in um, July and August when schools were opened it was going to be horrible uh, it's not to date um, so maybe maybe and I would say that I think schools and students really understand the rules and Teachers are good at enforcing rules. We've done that all of our careers. And um, I think, you know, if we all work together, I've said it, opening schools is the easy part. Keeping them open is the challenge. It's going to take us all working together to make it happen. And anything else you want to tell teachers or students uh, or parents that you get these questions day after day after day and you just want to tell them, okay, here's the answer to that. I don't want to have to hear this question anymore. Or what's the most common questions you get that you want to get answered? First, I never feel that way. Ah. Because my job is here to field those questions and to be there for our teachers and for our community. So I never feel like that. I don't get frustrated with it. What I think, and I often go to, to Aubrey Chancellor to say, what are we not doing that people aren't getting this message? How can we communicate this differently or in a unique way so that it resonates with the community? Because what we've done to date isn't working. I think what I would say is to, to teachers, a thank you for what you're doing. You're doing amazing. Uh, my executive staff and I have visited over 200 campuses, to, or made 200 campus visits to date, and what we see are teachers are working their tail ends off. It is amazing what they're doing. Um, you know, show yourself some grace, because they've set such a high bar for themselves, as teachers often do, and they're frustrated when they don't get there. They need to show themselves some grace, and understand that this is a learning curve, and to just take it day by day and, and not get stressed out. To students, 
make sure you continue to follow the protocols because uh, as we've opened into phase three, what we've proven is that they're working, that it's a good way to open schools because we're not seeing the spread. And then to parents is continue to show the grace that you're showing your teachers and the patience that you are. Um, I, I'm sure you've seen many reports around the nation in a virtual environment of parents doing all sorts of things to disrupt the rooms. Uh, in my listening, my last listening session with teachers, they said, has there been an instance here and there? Yes, but it's so very few and far between. And what they say is they're just so impressed with how supportive parents are right now and the grace that they're showing uh, teachers. So keep doing what they're doing. And if, my, if anyone is concerned about grades, it's a totally different thing. My kids are all different right now. What do you tell them? Yeah, so when it comes to grades is one, if your child is struggling in a virtual environment, they probably need to come back to school and really think about bringing them back. We, again, as I stated, we're reaching out to those parents and really urging them to send their child back that virtual isn't working. Um, because look, we've, we've got teachers there that are ready to do it. We changed uh, secondary schedules really to address that type of thing. And so if they come back to the campus, teachers are ready and willing to help them out. Because again, um, my, my, my son is back, my daughter is not. It didn't work for my son quite like it is for my daughter. So every child is different. Thank you very much for your time. I really Thank appreciate you. it. Appreciate Thanks. it.